Student debt is one of the most hot-button political issues in America today, hanging a nearly $2 trillion cloud over policy decisions across multiple fields. But how did we get here? That's what Marshall Steinbaum attempts to explain. From policy actions taken nearly half a century ago to inaction taken today, there are several key junctures that determine the state of student debt in the United States. Steinbaum also explains the economics behind the growing pile of student debt and why this is both not a crisis and an everlasting one all the same. That's coming up on the Consortium for Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast. For the Consortium in Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast, I'm Luke Sego. I'm joined by Dr. Marshall Steinbaum from the University of Utah and co-author of the paper, What is the Problem with Student Debt? And Marshall, just to get into a bit of background first, when we talk about student debt, we're talking about student loans. And so there's this massive change in the 1980s where student loans become the primary mechanism for financial assistance in higher education. Can you give us some background on this? What drove this change? What are the motivations and the arguments surrounding student loans? Sure. Well, the federal student loan program predates the 1980s by a couple of decades and uh, was expanded in the Higher Education Act of 1972. But even when it was notionally similar to the system that we have now, that's what created the architecture of the student loan system and, and created institutional eligibility and so on. It didn't become the primary mechanism of financing higher education until public institutions sort of decoupled their dependence on state funding, on state budgets, and shifted more towards a tuition-based business model. So that was made feasible by the pre-existing presence of this federal student loan program that basically backstops the tuition that individual students can pay, because of course, if the institutions had increased their tuition as much as they have done in the last decades uh, without the federal student loan program, they wouldn't have nearly as much of the market uh, of a market as they as they currently do. So basically, the the existence of that program made possible a political economy of higher education, whereby state legislatures can defund notionally public higher education institutions and systems, which educate is certainly at the undergraduate level, the vast majority of students, uh, it can uh, cut down funding for them on the assumption that those institutions will survive by raising tuition and that the students will pay that higher tuition because they have uh, the federal student loans standing behind them, uh, enabling them to write those checks. And when does this decoupling defunding phenomenon begin? Is it, is it punctuated or is it more gradual? Like, is there a specific moment at which you really see this start to take off? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really a full authority on this, but I would put it actually in the early 2000s in the sense that it's so it's punctuated because usually these state budget cuts happen in the aftermath or during and after uh, macroeconomic recessions where states are required to operate at a, a balanced budget. And so their tax revenues go down when there's a recession and consequently look for things to cut. So it's the federal student loan program that has made higher education, I mean, among other things, has made higher education an attractive target for state legislatures when they're looking to uh, fiscally consolidate. And as I said, that's sort of punctuated by the macroeconomic business cycle. The other piece of it is that I feel at a longer time scale, the political economy of state level taxation has shifted pretty decisively against progressive taxation. So whereas in practice, states might once have adopted uh, increased revenue type policies to deal with 
macroeconomic recessions, more and more their their attention is on what can we cut, and higher education is an attractive target for their cuts, in part because they know that the federal student loan program exists, in part because students and young people in general have less political power than the tax base of state income taxes, which tends to be the richest people in, in the states that are making these uh, budgetary choices. And you just sort of touched upon how there are certain groups that are displaced or you know not empowered to make fully rational or you know decisions fully of their own choice because of economic situations uh, surrounding them. And to that effect, there's a great line in the paper that says government reliance on student loans without market discipline has created collateral damage. Can you discuss how working class families are forced to accept debt and the negative effects of this systematic uh, normalization of debt for these families? Sure. I mean, there's this sort of several step dance where states cut higher education budgets, institutions therefore raise tuition, and the federal government writes out more loans because of that increased tuition. And the federal policy is in general that more people should get a college education and get more of a college education. You know, that is all kind of absent the what the mechanism that should be in place, which is federal regulation of higher education. You know, the federal government is essentially financing these uh, open-ended loans and has increased the limits on those loans as well as made the graduate loan program extremely generous and that there's really no uh, uh, loan limits there. All of that is basically a cash cow for institutions without any strings attached. And of course, the institutions have fought very hard to ensure that no, that no strings continue to be attached. So they don't want federal regulation of tuition. Um, they don't want uh, any sort of regulatory accountability regime that threatens high cost, uh, low output or low benefit type programs that earn a lot of money for institutions. And I think you know that uh, dynamic was very obviously in play in the uh, debate that played out a few months ago about whether to include free community college in the uh, Build Back Better Act. I mean, basically the institutions fought tooth and nail against that. And you would think they might like what that represents because it's a huge amount of federal money to in exchange for uh, zero tuition at those institutions. But I think the higher education establishment perceives that as an intolerable shift away from its current mode of doing business. So they don't want the sort of partnership with the federal government whereby tuition is capped in exchange for a boatload of direct funding. They would rather the current system continue, which is they get a boatload of federal cash indirectly through federal student loans uh, without any strings attached. And that's a nice segue into uh, the next question we have is uh, your, your paper points out that this current system really demands astonishingly little uh, in terms of the quality of program or any sort of mandates on these programs, while the private sector of education keeps raising prices with the state institutions following from behind. Uh, from this market-based policy orientation or reorientation that has uh, you know, moved higher education towards a primarily private good versus a public one, can you discuss in more detail, the effects of that shift of, you know, sort of privatization of what of what was once a public good or nominally public good? Well, I think you can see it directly in the mountain of federal student loans that aren't being repaid. I mean, the whole premise, the sort of ideological premise behind this privatization shift is that education is primarily benefiting the individual who takes on the education. And the way that it benefits that individual is by increasing the earnings uh, that they can enjoy over their lifetime as a result of uh, greater educational attainment. So that has 
at the ideological level, justified the expansion of the federal student loan program such that more individuals are taking out more loans at larger amounts to get more education, presuming that that will lead to them getting higher earnings. And that latter piece of it just hasn't been true. And so that's a major misunderstanding of how the labor market works. That's kind of the how I got into studying this area as, as a labor economist, having heard that assumption repeated over and over and that again, and then seeing that in reality, it's not accurate at all. So the outcome is just this ever-growing mountain of debt. If, the, if that uh, mechanism were true, then you wouldn't expect the uh, mountain of debt to be ever-growing. If it were true, you know, institutions are more expensive, people are getting more education, maybe the maximum amount of debt they ever have in life would be higher than it was in, in previous generations, but they would be paying it off. So you would see the sort of take out debt while you're in school, get a well-paying job and start to pay it back. And that is very, very much not the dynamic that you see. Uh, more and more people take out more debt, and then that balance just increases and increases and increases over the course of their lifetime because they're not earning enough to pay it back. And I like the analogy you used earlier of this all sort of being a coordinated dance between so many different parties to this arrangement. But what happens when the music stops? You know, what happens when this mountain keeps growing and growing to an untenable point? <laughs> Well, I don't, as an economist, I don't forecast any one moment by, at which the music stops in the way that you alluded to. I've used the analogy of musical chairs mm -hmm. to some degree in my own research to refer to this phenomenon in the labor market where there's basically fewer and fewer jobs. So people get more and more credentials in order to qualify for those fewer and fewer jobs. But from a macroeconomic or, or you could say financial perspective, the growing mountain of debt is not ever going to trigger like one moment in which everyone just realizes, oh my God, this whole thing is a house of cards because student loans are not secured. So by contrast, it has a lot in common with the housing uh, bubble and bursting of that bubble in the Great Recession. But one thing it does not have in common is that when, if, if you have a mortgage and a house and you realize that the house is worth a lot less than you thought, and in fact, worth less than the uh, principal amount of the mortgage, you can sell the house in principle and pay off the mortgage, or you can just leave and abandon both the house and the mortgage. So those are things that were part of the acute phase of the financial crisis where you had what, what economists call a debt deflation, meaning people who have debt that is valued more than the asset it financed, sell the asset that causes the market value of that asset to decline even further, causing more people to sell, which has the self-reinforcing quality and downward spiral that bursts a bubble. You know that all happens all at once when the debt is uh, secured debt because you can sell the asset to notionally pay off the balance of the loan. For student loans, that's not possible. So there's not it's not possible to liquidate the asset because that's the so-called human capital. Or I mean, I don't even believe that that's a real tangible object. Or or you know, it's it's more like an ideology. But by but if if the asset that's being purchased is just that you have an educational credential, there's no way to market that if it turns out to be worth less than you paid for it. And so, consequently, that means there's no there's both no crisis there's both no crisis and an everlasting crisis because there's no way to get out from the debt overhang of all of the student debt sitting on your household balance sheet and not earning enough to to pay it back. So this is where the for example the income driven repayment programs come in because. They're, they function in a way so as to sort of prolong and draw out the non-repayment of student debt. Basically, it reduces your ob obligatory monthly payments to a given percentage of your income, which is fine and good for its beneficiaries, but that just means the balance is increasing over time rather than decreasing. I want to shift gears a little bit to some a little bit more of an equity focus. And your paper points out that 
Uh, it's more expensive to serve low-income and marginalized students, but more public dollars flow to more privileged students in universities. And in your paper, there's a comparison of tax subsidies to Princeton, Rutgers, and Essex Community College in the paper, and one that was you know, particularly salient to me as, an ex as someone who was born and raised in Essex County. Can you discuss this system of funding and how a more universal system could correct these inequities? Well, so there's huge segregation in the higher education system that that passage in the paper refers to, meaning that the, the least well-off students tend to uh, attend the least well-resourced institutions and consequently the most dependent on student tuition type institutions, um, whereas the, the students who come from the most advantaged backgrounds tend to go to the institutions where that are least reliant on, on tuition dollars to finance themselves because they have endowments or uh, whatever else. So that makes a highly diverse higher education system highly inequitable. Um, I was uh, on a different podcast discussing this, and, and I would say the schematic point you could make about this is that a higher education system that is more homogeneous, which is to say less difference between institutions, you think of, for example, a, a state university system that has uh, research institutions, four-year undergraduate institutions and community colleges, but not among each of those tiers, not a lot of difference between the institutions. That's going to be a more equitable and diverse uh, set of student bodies at each of those institutions. What, what makes the United States a uniquely segregated and, uh, I would say, inequitable higher education system is exactly what, had, what most higher education scholars, at least going back a long ways, had considered to be its strength, which is the diversity of its institutions. And what the so-called, you know, quote-unquote, diversity really means segregation. That is the most advantaged students go to the institutions that cater to the most advantaged students and the least advantaged students are segregated into a subset of the higher education system. And this also gets back to the private purpose of higher education, uh, or I should say the purpose of a privatized higher education system, which I think is you know, more than anything to uh, reify economic and social hierarchy. Um, so this idea, you know, that there's this uh, that that higher education could be a, a route to the middle class or an egalitarian social institution, you know, presupposes that it's not as segregated or as privately financed as it is. But if you have an institution, uh, a, a system like the one that we have, then it's basically, you know, people who come from the most advantaged backgrounds are going to go to the fanciest schools, and then, you know, what's the point of that? Well, I would say it's probably to kind of reify hierarchy, like, oh, it's because they merit their high status that they go to the fanciest schools as opposed to just you know, another sort of indicator of social background. Endemic to this discussion around student debt is sort of a controversial topic in some circles of means testing. And your paper argues for eliminating means testing and replacing it with a more universal system of funding for higher education. Can you explain some of the negative effects of means testing that are present for families and students and society writ large? Well, this gets to, uh, I think, some of the perversities that are built into the existing system. You know, I, 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 it was funny when you brought that up because my work since we wrote a work on that paper makes me think that higher education is actually less means tested than it used to be in the following sense, that financial aid packages are, are notionally on the basis of need. So they're evaluating your parental background and giving you basically a discount off the sicker price of tuition, the greater your need. You know, that's, that's a means testing or means tested tuition system at the institution level. And institutions have moved away from that. I mean, in some cases, very profoundly, where uh, they're actually charged, you know, basically charging the same net price 
for students, no matter their background. And the reason why is they are moving from uh, need-based to merit-based financial aid. So merit-based financial aid, and I always use quotes when I discuss this because I don't think it's so much about merit, but rather about what your outside options are as a student. So if you are the kind of student that many institutions will court because they think you'll finish quickly and fully pay your tuition in every year and all the other things that play into the uh, both the institutional uh, financial landscape as well as the U.S. News and World Reports rankings, um, you know, they're going to try very hard to get you to come there, including giving you discounts on tuition. And the people who tend to make those rankings look the prettiest are people who uh, come from the most advantaged backgrounds. So in the paper, when we say we're not in favor of means testing, I would say that's certainly in the realm of student debt cancellation. I think trying to means test that would be a mistake. Uh, you know, we've seen in other uh, federal programs how difficult it is to actually tell how well off people are. There's a lot of preconceptions, as has been notable in the press in the discussion of student debt cancellation about who student debtors really are. And if you're really concerned about the undeserving, which is to say very well-off people benefiting from free higher education or from student debt cancellation, the way to handle that is through progressive taxation, not through trying to sort of build in some kind of economic equity framework um, into the program itself. I mean, just one last point on this. I would say there's a, a, a strong and often heard talking point about uh, public higher education supposedly being inequitable because it's a transfer from the poor to the rich because it's the children of the rich who go to college at all. And the tax base for public higher education is the entire society, which includes poor people not that uh, won't go to college and whose children uh, won't go to college supposedly. And so therefore public higher education is regressive. So uh, we should eliminate it. The reality is that public higher education is the least regressive type of higher education that there is. And a privatized system like the one we have is the, exactly the one that's most segregated and sending the uh, socioeconomically advanced students to the best institutions, or I should say the most resourced institutions. And there's been a lot of uh, popular discourse around you know, ways to solve this issue. And one solution that comes up in your paper and one that is, is frequently you know, bandied about in politics and you know, various different fields uh, is a universal program with a major focus on making in-state schools free to students. Can you discuss some of the strengths that you came across in uh, writing about this, this potential solution and some of the policies that would potentially serve as pathways out of the student debt crisis? Well, I think what that idea has going for it is exactly that we've tried it before and it was extremely successful. And in fact, its success was sort of its undoing. I think a lot of people look at state university systems that are fairly diverse or were fairly diverse at one time and think, you know, I don't want that type of student at my state's university, so let's keep them out um, or segregate the system so that, you know, there's certain institutions within the state system where those type of people go and, you know, these other parts of the state system are reserved for people like me. That is, I, I think, you know, a retrograde way of running a higher education system. So in terms of what actual concrete proposals for making public higher education systems both more accessible and uh, lower cost, you know, I think it's got to basically be federal funding at this point, especially given how state tax bases are uh, constructed. And also the federal systems are the ones that are least segregated of all of the sort of public institutions writ large, but I don't mean public in the strict sense, but in, the, in that like what institutions govern how society is structured or comprise how society is structured. The ones associated with the federal government tend to be the least segregated. Um, and I think one of the reasons why the higher education system has become so segregated is it was never a federal program. 
And I want to return to something you had touched upon earlier to sort of govern this, this final section, and that's debt cancellation, debt forgiveness. The paper adds that debt forgiveness is another component that could potentially restore public faith in the American education system. And polls have shown that Americans, or at least a majority of Americans, expect that the federal and state governments can ensure higher education to be affordable and of high quality. And at the same time, Americans believe uh, and support in some form of student debt forgiveness. Can you talk about this you know, student debt forgiveness proposal and what some of the ramifications could be surrounding this phenomenon? Yeah, it's interesting to see the sort of innate hostile reaction that it garners from uh, some scholars of the higher education system and especially from policymakers and even higher education institutions, the latter being the most surprising in some ways because they shouldn't, in principle, care whether the student debt is canceled or not. They've already been paid. All these students have taken out their loans. They now can't repay. And you would think that if they had any loyalty to their own students, they might favor those students getting out from under the mountain of debt. Um, but I think what we saw with both the debate over the Build Back Better Act and the, the current discussion of administrative cancellation, so by, by uh, unilateral action of the uh, federal executive, is that they basically nobody wants to admit that the emperor has no clothes, meaning the emperor being the higher education system, um, and in particular, higher education institutions that are benefiting from what I described earlier, where they basically have a de facto blank check from the federal government and no strings attached to that blank check in terms of the quality or price of the education that they deliver. You know, they don't they don't like student debt cancellation because it would be tantamount to admitting that what they have been saying for the last 30 years about investments in education paying off in the form of higher earnings aren't true. Um, and there's all sorts of, I would say, political baggage associated with higher education and with the students and college students in particular that leads the political system to not entertain them as valid uh, constituents whose interests should or must be served by, uh, by the government. Um, so, uh, you know, you have on the one hand this idea that they're all very privileged and student debtors are uh, very wealthy professionals like uh, uh, doctors and lawyers who can easily pay back their loans but would love to not have to and you know they should be dismissed for that reason. On the other hand, you have the student debtors painted as sort of idiots who uh, languished in college uh, taking irrelevant courses and majoring in the wrong subject so they couldn't get a job. And so those ingrates and people who brought their uh, immiseration upon themselves shouldn't be worthy of the uh, attention of uh, policymakers in terms of alleviating their their burdens. And you know neither of those pictures is, is accurate. And the fact that they contradict one another suggests that there's more about, it's more about sort of the political system not really knowing what to do in terms of meeting the needs and demands of its constituents than it is about anything those constituents have done, because they've done what they were told to do, which is take out a ton of debt in order to get an education because that's going to pay off in the labor market. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, anticipation of every aspect of that, but especially the sort of labor market, how the labor market works, that set of assumptions, uh, that being factually false. And I think you really just touched upon one of the biggest uh, misconceptions, you know, around debt forgiveness in popular discourse that like either these are highly paid 20-somethings who are more than capable of paying back their debts, so why should we do it for them? Or it's these, you know, the, these bums who took underwater basket weaving and should are expecting society to bail them out. And I, I think that's sort of a, a salient misconception that's frequently brought up in public discourse. But are there any other misconceptions that you see surrounding this debate over a universal system and debt forgiveness? And how do you respond to them? 
Well, I mean, I've said a number of times the idea that a higher education pays off in the form of higher earnings in the labor market uh, is wrong for a number of reasons about how. So, as I said, this is how I got into student debt studies is as a labor economist studying the return to education, if you could call it that, or the lack of one in the labor market. That idea doesn't pay attention to the possibility of credentialization, that the more education everyone has, the lower the earnings can be expected associated with that level of education, giving rise to a dynamic of what I've called uh, trying to go up a down escalator, uh, where you get more educational credentials in order to uh, qualify yourself for a given level of earnings. And that mechanism of credentialization is going to mean that the earnings associated with any given amount of student debt are going down and down um, over time. So the amount of student debt associated <laughs> or that any individual has to uh, take on is going up and up over time. Like that is ex the exact dynamic that um, makes this mountain of debt unrepayable and ever growing for most borrowers. In terms of uh, you know other misconceptions about the higher education system, I mean, I think on the one hand, most people are aware of how much more costly it is than it was in the past. So, you know, these sort of anecdotes of like, oh, well, I paid off my debt. Well, yeah, that's because it was, you know, one tenth of what it would have had to been. It was $500 uh, get... a semester, yeah. and then you could right. buy a house for $3,000 for your wife <laughs> yeah. and two kids. And, right. you know, exactly. so much living, for that. Living the Simpsons dream or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also, I, I think, a misconception of who students are. I mean, that gets into this. You know, either they're uh, the well-off uh, graduates of professional schools or, you know, ne'er-do-wells who took underwater basket weaving. You know, that that does neither of those categories is apt for the vast majority of students in this country. I, I think, you know, a big part of the sort of public debate about higher education is premised on the fact that, like, most people in media and most people in politics went to a very small number of schools, a very small subset of the actual higher education uh, system that exists and have kind of preconceptions from their experience in those schools that are absolutely not representative of uh, what most people in this country's experience of higher education is. So I would just say the pre the misconception is that the students and former students, that population is, you know, a, an unrepresentative subset of the population of the United States. It is in fact a representative subset, except in one dimension, which is age. So one strong aspect of the student debt problem is that it's very much a generational or cohort-specific uh, phenomenon for exactly the reason you just gave. It used to be the case that you didn't need as much debt to graduate from college. It also used to be the case that you didn't need to graduate from college or even go to college to get a good job. Consequently, the probability of having any amount of student debt is strongly decreasing in age. So when I say it's a representative sample of the United States, this also gets to why the politics of student debt is disconcerting to the political establishment, in my opinion, that it it very much reflects the interests of the generations that are currently young and reflects their demographics strongly. So it is very bound up in the diversification of the country in, in uh, social and uh, racial and economic lines. And that doesn't at all, that's not consistent with a lot of people in power's view of who goes to college, who gets what degree in college, and you know they would rather, or they they innately do see the population of student debtors as one that is foreign from themselves because it comes from a different generation than themselves. Perhaps naively, we here at Seafree like to believe that you know higher education can be an institution for the public good, and as you mentioned in your paper, uh, you know we, there's there's a need to prioritize these institutions that work towards the public good, that work towards the public benefit, uh, which I think gets to the core of the issue. And if you can sort of synthesize 
everything we've talked about. What what do you perceive to be the ideal role of higher education uh, in a society like the United States? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. I think it is a public good. I would like to live in a world where uh, if you want to get a degree and you have the academic qualifications necessary to get a degree, that you can get a degree regardless of its cost. And that should be true regardless also of what age you are. So if you're older and are, you know, you should have the ability to go to your local uh, state college or whatever and uh, take classes and get degrees, even if outside the logic of acquiring the skills that you would need in order to uh, increase your earnings or have the career that you want. I think that that conception that this investment in human capital, again, is very premised on this idea that everyone who goes to college is young, that they're tr so-called traditional students, meaning they go to college either directly after high school or not that long after high school, attend full time and come out of it and then commence their career with the human capital they've acquired. You know, that that's never going, if that's what higher education is or is confined to be, that is never going to be a um, majority, majoritarian type of edifice. And my view of what higher education should be is one that embraces the population where they are and uh, serves them something that's valuable to them. And I think uh, public higher education system is absolutely capable of doing that. Dr. Marshall Steinbaum is an assistant professor of economics at Utah University. His paper with Dr. Sarah Goldrick Robb from Temple University, What is the Problem with Student Debt? is widely available online. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the Consortium for Policy Research and Education. Make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts to keep up with all of our content.